Hello everyone, it's G3. And in recent weeks, the rhetoric being exchanged by U.S. and Chinese leaders has reached a feverish pitch. But bluster and, dare I say it, hot air aren't the only factors to keep in mind when analyzing the trajectory of Sino-U.S. relations. That's why I'm delighted to have Weiss's China expert, Mike Edwards, on Green Marbles this week. Mike had plenty to say on where things stand between the U.S. and China, China's relationship with Russia, and what all of this implies for markets in the coming months. So as always, please check important disclosures at the end of the episode. And with that, welcome. All right. We are recording. Mike, thanks for agreeing to be here today. Absolutely. Well, we're going to talk about China. And you know what? We just have to kind of get the whole balloon issue out of the way up front. Let me just ask you, is this entire balloon controversy a gigantic red herring or has it served any valuable purpose in your mind? I mean, I think it has garnered way more attention in the, you know, the sort of memification or whatever you like when a diplomatic incident becomes the cold open for a Saturday Night Live episode, it's probably gone a little too far. But I mean, look, who benefits? Like people know what NORAD is. Like their funding's going to be, even in the face of defense scrutiny and a debt ceiling fill in the blank, right? Their funding's probably pretty secure, all other things being equal. I think there's been a, a lot of positioning around an incident that really wasn't that impactful. Why do I say that? I think we can rightly say the fact that we had a a balloon armed with a lot of dual-use technology in the payload that we, apparent, we, the U.S. military, apparently recovered off the coast of South Carolina, did we learn a lot from that? Maybe, maybe not. I don't think we're going to know. We were able to talk more openly about dual-use technology, and the Commerce Department went and sanctioned some companies, and then the Chinese went and sanctioned some companies, and most of that is pretty meaningless in terms of being needle-moving as opposed to the kind of requisite diplomatic responses to an, an incident. But I think, you know, in, in parsing what was the impact on the U.S.-China relationship, what we don't know is whether that incident was intentional or not. And I think that's actually the, that's actually the important question is, was effectively, was this a screw-up that this balloon entered and stayed in U.S. airspace? Or was it subtly provocative and the screw-up was, if anything, was, was more kind of diplomatic or a misreading of how badly it would be taken by the government and sort of the media and the U.S. populace at large? This I would probably land more in the category of there were technical malfunctions along the way as opposed to a command and control issue or a diplomatic misreading. So either, as we were talking about before, either the U.S. somehow jammed communications or prevented the either destruction or return home of that craft because apparently it had been tracked from the point of departure from I think it was Hainan or there was a malfunction of some kind and here we are. But whether or not there was a desire to sort of cause an incident or to, you know, chest puffing or something like that, none of that tracks for me. I think that is the U.S. being in the sort of the commentariat within the U.S. And it's obviously been very politicized as well, just 
finding an issue that is inflammatory. One other thing I've seen that has come out of this is perhaps more attention being placed on the arms race, if you will, between the U.S. and China in space. Do you buy that there is some sort of connection between this whole balloon flap and what is going on in space between the U.S. and China? Yes and no. The space race, as it were, has been on for quite some time. I don't think anything. I mean, this is really the sort of thing where it's there's an observed phenomenon and the underlying hasn't changed at all. I do think that in the general arc of the space race, this is a topic that from an economic perspective is getting and will continue to get more scrutiny. And if you wanted to do sort of the contrast, right, from a military standpoint, you can just use Starlink as an example of a company that is not a military company, but is having huge military implications in the context of a, you know, sort of space race. Obviously, Starlink is SpaceX and Elon Musk has been for many reasons in the news, but in the news, <laughs> including for that reason, there is no Chinese equivalent. You simply can't imagine the Chinese government having to publicly cajole a company into doing X, Y, or Z, right? They're fully uh, dual use in the sense of like feet planted firmly in both camps. And so in that sense, I do think that there's more awareness of and more risk as a result in the broader arc of the U.S.-China economic relationship and this particular vector of decoupling, potentially, that we'll talk about. But is the ionosphere part of space? I don't have the chops to debate that one way or the other. I would just point out that the difference between a satellite and what a balloon can do is probably focused on communications intercepts. And I'm going to assume that that's part of the reason why you would have, and it's not just Chinese, any balloon-based spying technology would be focused on that as opposed to imagery, which I think it's safe to assume that the Chinese have perfect imagery of just about anything they want on the continental United States. All right. So let's talk about what has occurred post the balloon flap. For those people who've been preoccupied and not able to keep track of all of the incidents, and it seems like there's been a number since the balloon flap, can you just give us a brief overview of the moves and counter moves undertaken by the U.S. and China since the balloon was shot down? Yeah. From a, a tit-for-tat perspective pertaining exactly to that, the Chinese government used the phrase regret in referencing that incident, which is as close in diplomatic speak as you're going to get to a formal apology from this sort of relationship. And then the U.S. went and shot down three more, we'll call them UFOs, which then subsequent to that, Biden referenced those as being definitively not Chinese. And so whatever, we could have a bunch of questions as to why and was that sort of chest puffing or deterrence or was it political or was, you know, but any way you cut it, it's all, I, I mentioned that NORAD's very well-funded. Good thing NORAD's going to be well-funded because these are not inexpensive uh, shoot downs as it were. But I do think it was important that that was, you know, Biden confirming that this was these were not Chinese was sort of de-escalatory in this uh, particular, as I've already said, I don't think particularly important, but nonetheless focused on vector. And then away from that, we talked about sort of on the in the economic space, the Commerce Department went and sanctioned the 
six companies that had technology in the payload. And then China put fines on Raytheon and Lockheed for their arms sales to Taiwan, which was effectively what they don't actually say this, but it's viewed as a proportionate response to that. I would say it's proportionate, but also de-escalatory in the sense that, well, I'm going to go out and say on a limb and say de-escalatory important because it's really the first action ostensible and not economically impactful, but the first action that China has taken against U.S. companies within the broader arc of the U.S. doing a taking a ton of economic actions, most especially cutting off semiconductor equipment exports and tools exports and that sort of thing to the Chinese semis industry that went unanswered, amazingly unanswered by China and still is unanswered. But here's an, an actual proportionate response. Why do I say it's ostensible only or kind of toothless? Because Raytheon and Lockheed Martin don't sell equipment into China. It's like a vegan boycotting McDonald's. Like, <laughs> okay. Symbolic, but so what? It doesn't, I, I think they know. do have the McVegan now or some sort they of have impossible yeah. Okay. I'm Maybe possible. that was bad. I think people know what I mean, <laughs> but I guess the counter to it is, I think more importantly than that is like, if China had wanted to be impactful, they would have sanctioned Boeing that actually sells planes in China, but they didn't. So that's sort of your economic sphere. And then I think this, in my view, this is the most important in the diplomatic realm. You had Blinken postpone his trip to Beijing as a result that was planned for, I think it was the second week of February. And then there were questions as to whether the Chinese foreign minister Wang Yi would actually meet Blinken in the wings of the Munich security conference. And that meeting actually did happen. It was reportedly and predictably contentious, but contentious within the confines of expected contentiousness. And so I think the we could say that diplomatic connectivity has been restored, even if that connectivity is kind of fraught. The reason I say I think that's the most important vector is I think a lot of this and the bilateral U.S.-China positioning right now has a lot to do with the Russia-Ukraine sort of front, as it were. And that is probably the most important piece of context for a lot of this, but obviously, especially the Munich meeting, because the Munich Security Conference is about European security. Well, okay. I'm glad you raised the issue with the Ukraine war. You know, of course, Biden had that dramatic visit to Kiev with a lot of skullduggery around it that enabled it to be possible. Putin has come out and suspended participation in the new START agreement. And China and Russia have repledged themselves to one another, at least publicly, to talk about cooperation and the like. Can you give a sense as to what China's play is here? I mean, it seems to me that China, in theory, benefits from letting the two other largest powers in the world direct their anger towards each other and not China. Is there anything to this idea of China staying above the scrum, being friendly to Russia, not being overly hostile to the U.S. and letting the U.S. and Russia continue to kind of uh, fight things out in Ukraine through what the U.S. is seemingly doing, which is an almost proxy war for the U.S. at this point. Yeah. I mean, that is sort of the question, right? Is Ukraine a proxy war? In a minute, I'll make the case for why it could be perceived as such. But before I do, like, I think you asked two questions even before that. I put a bunch of questions into that. There's a bunch of things in there, but, you know, it's sort of, Regardless of what exactly those questions were, let me, <laughs> you get let, me my point. let me answer what I think they were. <laughs> One of them, which requires a little bit of zooming out for a second, is 
you know, just to say that the broader U.S.-China agenda, as it were, what's happening on that axis, I think is very, very different from what's happening on Russia, Europe, or any other axis that involves Russia. And that is an emphasis, and, and this is really the key development over the last three or four months, which I don't think, we went down a balloon rabbit hole, but I don't think it's that important. The key to it is deconfliction. And deconfliction is a technical term in bilateral relations, which is establishing communications to prevent accidents from escalating into being a problem. And that started back when Biden met Xi in Bali. And that was what had set the stage for the Blinken-Beijing trip and for other trips in the future and just sort of looking out, which we don't need to dive too far into this, but just looking out at the calendar of events over the next year and making sure that China and the U.S. are putting their communications relationship back into a good place. Because in my view, and I think it's a shared view, and even among China hawks in U.S. State Department and elsewhere, the biggest risk to the relationship is accidents that escalate, military or otherwise. Now, your question about, just, is China happy to just stay out of it and let everybody else spend calories and money and munitions and everything else? I don't think it's that simple. I think for China, what's at risk is the European relationship in particular. Europe is, as an entity, is China's largest trading partner. And the perception that China's affinity for Moscow can drive uh, decay in that relationship and really pose risk to it is a big issue. And so, you know, I've used this phrase many times in talking about sort of Chinese diplomacy, but they're walking a tightrope. They need to maintain their, what was previously called friendship without limits. That phrase doesn't get repeated very often anymore, but with Russia for a host of reasons, while also not pissing off their important trading partners in Europe and ideally allowing for selective as opposed to complete decoupling with the U.S., now, you also asked about the kind of proxy war concept. And I do think that the, you know, in, in what sense might this be a proxy war? Well, I think the consensus view, and I would sort of agree with this, is that the Ukraine war has entered a, what could be called as an attritional phase, meaning the lines are more or less established. People are dug in. There are going to be losses on both sides. This is about measuring the losses in both human costs and dollar costs and munitions, et cetera. And in that respect, I think supply chains and support arrangements are very important. Who's supporting whom? Well, obviously NATO is supporting Ukraine. And then we've sort of, in this current phase, we've read a lot about the commitments of tanks and potentially fighter jets and things like that, which by the way, have not arrived yet. And which is why the sort of late winter to spring fighting phase is so important in establishing those lines. And then on the other hand, who's supporting Russia? Well, to some extent, you have you know, Iranian technology and drones. But for the most part, the technological side and the economic support is coming from its relationship with China. Russian exports to China have doubled since the start of the Ukraine war. So that tells you a lot. That, that's not to say, I mean, some of that is, uh, is circumstantial as opposed to intentional. But it tells you a lot about where the, the proxy war narrative can live. And it also tells you a lot about why at the Munich conference, there was a red line drawn. And that red line was 
providing lethal aid, meaning munitions and military equipment from China to Russia. I think that drawing the line there did two things. Number one, it sort of forced, I mean, this was literally a question <laughs> to Wang Yi, which was a very uncomfortable question, but it forced him to, to acknowledge that there was a red line. Can, can I just hit stop yep. real, real quickly here? You've mentioned Wang Yi a couple of times. Can you talk about who he is and why he is a very important actor here? Yeah, so he's the new head of the Chinese foreign ministry, and he historically has been a I should say in recent history, has been a fairly hawkish figure within the, well, within the broader Chinese foreign presence or the Chinese diplomatic core. He really pushed the core into the phrase he used was sort of a, to adopt a fighting spirit on the international stage. So he's not what we might describe as a wolf warrior, but I'd say he's like wolf adjacent. And that push has been to be more confrontational, especially with the U.S., in a lot of different settings. So the first prominent one under the Biden administration was in Anchorage when Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken confronted. <laughs> I'm laughing because the confrontational spirit was two-sided, not one-sided. But they confronted, in this case, him and China more broadly with a sort of a list of grievances and he responded right back with sort of counter grievances and reasons why the U.S. positions constituted hypocrisy, which, whatever, we don't need to dive into that too far, but it gives you a sense of he has been very willing to kind of stand up to the U.S. Two other just features in the background that are important for this discussion. He sort of cut his teeth in the Sino-Japanese relationship. He was the foreign minister to Japan for quite a long time, speaks Japanese fluently. And then the other feature I think that's important is that he has developed a pretty decent rapport with Sergei Lavrov and has been unafraid of championing very publicly the China-Russia relationship in a number of different settings. So it gives you a sense of, you know, he is not, and he's actually said almost this exact phrase, is he's not going to be bullied by the U.S. on the international stage. But there's a difference between his rhetoric and China supplying Russia with lethal aid. Yes. And this is why that particular question and point put to him was so important and such an important line here. So on the one hand, it forced him to acknowledge that, or to at least claim implicitly or otherwise, that they're not doing so at this time, such that if they do so in the future, it would be hugely symbolic. And we can talk about predictions of whether that happens in a few minutes. But the other thing, which I think is really important, I'm going to bring back this term dual use technology, right? It did not draw the line there. It meaning the U.S. and NATO and the sort of stage setting for this discussion did not draw the line at supplying technology or financing or anything else that we might, you know, that even those who would view Ukraine as a proxy war of sorts might view the sort of support arrangements as being. And I think that's important because they asked a question to which Wong could agree that we are not supplying lethal aid and that they are abiding by by the sanctions regime. If you remember back, this is now 11 months ago in March of last year. I don't remember if it was both Jordy and I, or it was just I on, on a podcast at the time. We're sort of jumping up and down and saying, that Xi Jinping had drawn the line and said, we're not going to get sanctioned in the way that Russia is getting sanctioned. 
and we're not going to cross the red lines here. In that same spirit, this is the sort of red line to which we're referring, and it'll be very important to reference this point in time in the future to think about whether NATO and the U.S. are going to move the goalposts around dual-use technology and providing that to Ukraine as being important, which could absolutely happen, and that would be inflammatory. But at the moment, this is something they've lived with, and frankly, China's got a lot of company, India, Brazil, others that are consuming Russian oil they and other exports and are exporting to Russia as well. Like there's plenty of company there. It's not, we single out China as being the most important, but they're not alone on the international stage. Do you put any stock into Wang's efforts to potentially create a diplomatic win for China in the attempts he has made to set the stage for China to broker a peace between Russia and Ukraine. I mean, he's not a dummy, right? He knows yeah. what he's doing. He knows what he's doing, but there's no realistic pathway for a Chinese proposal to be a Chinese proposal that is assuredly Russia friendly. And to be clear, we actually expect, and maybe this is what you're referring to. We actually expect in the coming days, an articulation of such a peace proposal that there's been anyway, it's been hinted at, it's been hinted yeah. at. And I think it, it is, as we record this podcast, Wang Yi is actually in Moscow, I believe, and this may come on the heels of exactly that, but a peace proposal that comes immediately following the foreign minister being in the Kremlin is probably not the sort of thing you're going to get agreement to. So I think it is much more of a, it's more about the gesture than about the content of the gesture. And I, I actually think the following sentence is true. It is not manipulative that China wants tranquility on the world stage and benefits from it and will help architect it. Now, the architecture will be highly manipulative. And I think that it's not to be taken seriously in terms of like the path to peace is not going to be, it's not going to happen in Beijing. The necessary conditions are going to come from the U.S. on the one hand, or let's say the U.S. and NATO on the one hand, restraining a Ukrainian ask and the Chinese restraining a Russian ask enough that there is a, an actual means of talking. Again, I think it will take several rounds, but the conditions for rationality are going to require some Chinese suasion. Let's talk about um, market implications. If, in fact, the consensus that this war is going to drag on for some time and deconfliction also looks like it will be a reality between the U.S. and China. If you could talk about some of the potential positive outcomes of what that looks like for markets and also, you know, what could go wrong. If the conflict in Ukraine extends sort of indefinitely and there is a successful de-escalation from the perceived conflict, the word perceived is doing a lot of work there, yeah. but China and the U.S. can kind of keep it cool. For a while. I think that is very important for the ability for Chinese markets to restore prosperity, if you will. And I think it's also very important for Europe. You know, we've seen, as Jordi and I have talked about for quite some time now, we've seen pretty dramatic outperformance from both European and Chinese markets relative to the US over the last, let's call it four months or so. And I think a big part of the reason for European outperform well, if we just focus on Europe for a second, I think there are two big drivers of that. One of them has been that the 
very cold winter in which Russia having cut off gas to Europe was going to be unbelievably expensive in terms of input costs, et cetera, has not materialized. It hasn't just been a warm winter. It's been positively balmy, right? And that is, I mean, it you know, sounds like how, how important could the weather forecast be? It turns out very important. has been a huge driver of sort of corporate resiliency and demand resiliency. And then I think that the Chinese sort of reopening and resurgence, given the close connection between the European and Chinese economies, especially in a European export capacity, has also been very, very important. So a continuation of that trend is, you know, what I would expect in the sort of positive category. That's what I would expect. From the Chinese perspective, what China's goal is right now, certainly I believe, and I think there's strong evidence to indicate, is primarily about standing up their economy. For our listeners' benefit, Xi Jinping put a piece out last week in the sort of leading party policy journal called Chiu Shi that is more or less emphasizing how important getting the consumer right is and also the role, and this is very important to this discussion, the role that foreign investment can play there. And one of his salient points is about how securing foreign investment for the economy and an allowing foreign competition, which is, this is a very different piece of rhetoric from Xi, is very important to economic success. So in the context, as we've talked about before, of dual circulation, meaning for the Chinese economy, you have one, if you picture overlapping circles, one circle is the Chinese consumer driving demand. The other is the export-led economy. And when those are both working, I'm moving my hands in circles in front of G3 here. When both of those things are working, you have a successful Chinese economy, right? Well, right now, the concern is that the export side is not working because, or not working as well because of geopolitical forces and because of demand issues in the U.S. and otherwise as rates are rising. So you got to focus on the domestic consumer. That's what Xi Jinping is saying. Let's translate that into this discussion and why this is a positive I said before that I would agree with the statement that China wants tranquility on the world stage. This is the economic reason why. It's more important for China right now, this may not be true a year from now, but right now it's more important to successfully stand up its economy and you know, sort of win back the non-ultra-wealthy consumer to the sort of battle for animal spirits and what have you. It's more important to do that than anything else, than any of the nationalistic chest puffing. And, you know, we can debate about this, but sort of the Taiwan agenda and sending balloons over places and things like that. I, again, this is that's this underlies my thesis of why that was a, a flap and not a uh, intentional poke. And pay me a negative scenario. What this happens? Doesn't, this doesn't work. You mean this doesn't work? This doesn't work, meaning China fails to reinvigorate the Chinese consumer, notwithstanding all of their attempts, geopolitical affairs trump them. And as a result of that, yep. markets ultimately give back all of the gains over the last month or two. They've already given up, po given back some of them. Possibly and then some. Yeah. And I think you're going to see tremendous <clears throat> FX volatility on that front. And I think that we'll have discussions as the U.S. focuses on the debt ceiling of, well, who owns all these treasuries? And if we don't pay our creditors, who are those? You know, you can fill in the blanks in that discussion. That's not going to it's not going to go particularly well. But in region within Asia, you know, we've talked a lot about asynchrony and how even just central bank policy has been asynchronous. 
And if and as that gets inflamed, again, that it's going to lead to more FX volatility. And I think if this plays out in a sort of proxy war mentality, the implications are potentially quite literally nuclear. I know that's a very scary thought, but it's not untrue in, in the sense that it was only a couple of months ago that we were talking about Putin's use of tactical nukes on the battlefield and people were taking, you know, that was credible. I don't think there's a lot of dispute that the biggest force of restraint in that discussion and preventing the normalization of that discussion was the China-Russia back channel. You know, I think to simplify it, I think Xi Jinping told Putin to shut the F up and that was that, right? I mean, not potentially literally, but, you know, effectively that was the the result. So, but the, the relationship, you know, getting that wrong has pretty massive implications. And I'm I'm only being slightly hyperbolic with the, the nuke talk. Well, assuming they don't get it wrong and the reopening continues to proceed forward, you know, a lot of discussion has occurred within the walls here at Weiss about who are the winners of that? Who are the losers? Jordy has talked about how oil is not the way to play this reopening. And I have noticed, and we've talked about how, you know, some of Europe's leading luxury brands are trading at or near all-time highs. And then the metals certainly have been outperforming oil. Can you elaborate on how you see different asset classes potentially performing, assuming that the reopening goes according to planned and maybe add a little bit of your perspective on what Jordy has established as his view? Yeah, you know, I I think... Obviously, the the highlights, which I agree with, that you've just given have run a little bit of a risk of pontificating about the rearview mirror because these are things that have, have sort of happened and been realized. And it's a question of are these trends that will extend or not, right? But at least asking the question sort of why have we seen that sort of performance? Let's parse it out into you know, sort of supply and demand phenomena, right? From the supply angle, as it were, especially with respect to oil, you know, I actually think it's fairly and, – and the big beneficiaries, as you say, have been you know, European – Luxury brands, they've been sort of travel, Asian travel, et cetera, right? Well, from a supply perspective, it's pretty simple. China doesn't have a strategic reserve of handbags. <laughs> they have a strategic reserve of oil. So they can effectively release as needed in an anticipatory fashion. And the very long-term resiliency of, you know, particularly as, you know, we think about the kind of COVID consequences of, you know, wealth redistribution and this sort of thing is like there are more let's say flagrantly wealthy people that will continue buying handbags. That's a sustainable phenomenon. It ends up being a different picture there. We're now getting to the question of what is the new normal? The strengths in the new normal are going to be in services. And I think we're seeing that already. It's going to be moving from a revenge travel stage to a, okay, this is now with opened borders. This is now how we see China's footprint on the world stage and what percentage of global travel is a Chinese export, so to speak, which is a very large number. That, of course, is distinct from the health of the property sector, the health of the auto sector in China. And in particular, the property sector is in intensive care as opposed to with a (laughs) a coding or whatever. It's not healthy, and that is not what's going to lead China to a five-handled GDP growth this year. And so you can see the sort of distinction between the way that oil on the one hand or more broadly CRB RIND trades versus European luxury and the things that are tracking in those directions because they are both sustainable and the rate of change is enormous 
in terms of Chinese consumption of luxury goods and services as distinct from energy markets. I do like the idea of a strategic Birkin reserve. <laughs> I guess if, it, if things are in reserve long enough, they get to vintage. That is a, true. A barrel is a barrel is a barrel, right? That is true. They're all the same. All right, Mike, thank you so much for your time today. And I think I've got you committed to doing something as it relates to the arms race in space in the future. So I've got some reading in my future. All righty. Sounds great, Mike. That was fun, G3. Thanks. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. Information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investment. Any health-related information shared on this podcast is not intended as medical advice or for use in self-diagnosis or treatment. Please consult a qualified healthcare professional before acting upon any health-related information on this podcast. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.